0: Page 900, if you're using the church Bibles. It was the summer of 2012. I had just finished my first year at seminary in Edinburgh, and I was very keen to go and serve the Lord that summer. So I signed up to serve at a Christian teenage Bible camp based on the beautiful highlands of Scotland. The camp leader, knowing that I was a seminary student, thought it would be a good idea that I would do all the talks. The talks were planned to be on King David. I happily agreed. She informed me that one of the perks of being the main speaker was that in the retreat centre, I, I would get the penthouse. Now, I'm playing that a bit up. It was an ensuite room but it was up at the very top, away from anyone else, so that I would not be disturbed. I was delighted. Now, one thing you need to know about this camp was it wasn't your ordinary camp for teenagers. It was actually a camp for children, teenagers who were growing up in care. That is, the, some of them didn't know their parents. Their parents had passed on. Others of their parents were in prison. Others of their parents were in drug addiction. I didn't know what to expect, I was pretty naive, I thought it would be similar to most other camps I'd been on, fun, fellowship, outdoor activities, hearing the word, maybe a few loud-mouthed, disruptive teenagers. Anyway, we arrived on the Friday evening, we enjoyed a meal, we then played some icebreaker games to get to know one another, and then we sat down to supper. And for the purposes of this illustration, let me tell you about a little boy called Kyle. He was raised in care. And at the table that he was seated at, I don't know what made him do it, but he grabbed the head of the boy next to him and he slammed it off the table. There was a scream, there was a sight of blood, and there was huge commotion. The camp leader quickly said to all the kids, immediately, go to your dorms. She phoned the social worker and she said, you're going to have to come and collect Kyle." The social worker said, unfortunately, I've driven all the way back home to the lowlands from the highlands. I won't be able to drive home, drive back up this evening. I'll come and collect him tomorrow morning. So that night we had our team talk. We thought about how we could manage the kids the the next day. And we were praying for Kyle. Well, we retired for the night. I went up to my room at the top of the camp center. I was so glad for it. And just before I put my head to the pillow, there was a knock at the door. It was a camp leader. She said, Andy, I need to ask you a favor. Kyle is causing absolute chaos in his dorm. There is no other bed. There are no other spare rooms. We need to take him out of that dorm and we need to put him somewhere he's going to be on his own. So can you leave your room and can you go sleep in his bunk bed? well i had no choice i reluctantly agreed and as i packed up my belongings she said listen take your bed sheets and take your duvet you're going to need them as we're walking along the corridor she said kyle had an accident in his bed don't worry we've flipped the mattress everything will be okay well i crept into that dorm that evening and as i put my bag down and as i prepared to put my bed sheet on the mattress I was greeted with the stench of urine. Kyle had wet the bed. Kyle had never been away from home. Well, I lay in his bed that night, and if truth be told, I was raging. (laughs) I couldn't sleep. And then I asked myself, Why did I even bother coming on this camp? And then I remembered I'd come on this camp because I wanted to serve the Lord. And I started to remember Bible verses that just started to come to my mind. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Foxes of holes, birds of nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. I remembered how he was born in the stench and in the squalor of a borrowed stable. And then the, and then the the story that really convicted me was the one that's before us this morning. I remember that I served the Savior who stooped down to serve His disciples by washing their filthy and disgusting feet. And I was convicted. Who do I think I am? Well this morning we come to John chapter 13. This new section, the book of glory, Jesus and his disciples find themselves gathered in the upper room. They're about to partake in the Passover feast. Jesus knows what is ahead. He knows that his God-forsaken hour is approaching. Where he, the Passover lamb, who's come to take away the sins of the world, will shed his blood so that his people will never face the wrath of God. From John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, we have what is known as the farewell discourse. It's quite a thought that on the eve before Jesus' death, he wasn't preparing himself. He chose to prepare his disciples for what was about to happen. And he did so because he loved them. And what we have in this foot washing, this act of foot washing, is actually a symbolic act. Uh, the, The scholars call it an enacted parable. It's a prophetic action which is intended to point us to who Jesus is and why Jesus came into this world. Jesus came to cleanse us, to wash us from our sin. He is our humble, loving Savior. As we come to this text, let's pray that God would open our eyes, that we might see Jesus, that God would open our hearts, that we might receive his word for us. Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And we pray it in the name of the rock, and our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In verse 1, John sets immediately sets the scene for us. In verse 2 through 5, John invites us to meditate upon this humble, loving act of Jesus. And then in verses 6 through 17, John informs us of the meaning and the application of this act. He sets the scene. He invites us to meditate upon it. And then he explains its meaning and application. Now time and time again as we've worked through the Gospel of John, we've noted how John very deliberately, very purposefully loves to set the scene. He, he loves to inform us what's the occasion, what time it was. So look at how verse 13 begins. Now before the Feast of Passover. What time is it? It's Passover time. It's a time when God's people stop and remember that famous night where lambs were sacrificed, doorposts were covered in blood, the angel of death passed over, and God's people were saved. Interestingly, all the way throughout John's gospel, he's been telling us, more often than not, the occasion. Remember when we're studying chapters 5 through 8, he told us it was the Feast of Tabernacles. And do you remember how that formed a really key backdrop? It helped us color in who Jesus was and what he'd come to do. So when it was the Feast of Tabernacles and it was the water ceremony, Jesus in John chapter 7 stood up and said on the last day of the feast, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then in John chapter 8, still the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, on the evening when there was the light ceremony, Jesus stood up and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here John wants you and I to know, as Jesus prepares his disciples for his death, it's Passover. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb. John knew what time it was. Jesus knew what time it was. Look at what it says in verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. All the way through John's gospel we've been reading and hearing Jesus say my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Then we get to chapter 12 and Jesus says, my hour has come. The hour for him, the son of man, to be lifted up. And here Jesus, knowing that his hour had come to die on Calvary's hill and to depart and be with the father, had arrived. John wants us to know the time it was. He wants us to know that Jesus knew what time it was. It was time for his most glorious work. It was time for him to be glorified. But that's not the only way that John sets the scene for us. He tells us what motivated, what animated Jesus in this act before us and in the actions that will take place in the following chapters. Namely, love. Look at verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end, or to the end, or to the fullest extent, or to the uttermost. It's really fascinating that for a lot of John's gospel, Jesus' disciples have been out of view. We've been engaging a lot with Jesus' conversations with the religious leaders and so on and so forth. Well, from chapter 13 onwards, it's going to be Jesus and his disciples in this upper room. We're going to eavesdrop into one of the most intimate scenes in all of Scripture. Jesus with his closest friends. And you need to understand that every single thing that Jesus says and does in this room is motivated and animated by love. Having loved them to the end. Having loved them to the fullest extent. And you know the most staggering thing is? These men did not deserve his love. These men in less than 24 hours, would desert Jesus. One of them would even deny Jesus. And yet Jesus would prepare them for what was about to happen. And he would love them to the extent he would get down and wash their feet. A picture of what he was going to do in the cross. If you're a believer of the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, can I ask you this question? Do you know the extent to which Jesus loves you? Do you know how much you're loved by the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know that you're loved with an unfailing love, a steadfast love? A love that will never end because it's a love that never began, as Voss said. one of the reasons I have to ask you that question is because if you're anything like me, there are times in your life where you look within and you see your own sin and you see your own failing and you struggle to believe that Jesus could love you. And your problem is you're looking in the wrong place. Don't look within. Look without. Look to him. See what he's going to do here. He knew these men had failed him in the past. He knew these men had done nothing to merit his love. He knew that these men would fail him in, the very, in, in that very upper room. He knew that these men would go on and fail him in the future. And yet, he loved them to the extent he would not only wash their feet, but he would hang humiliated and naked on a cross. As their substitute for sin. That's the extent to which Christ loves us. That he's willing to die for us. So we've looked at John set this scene for us. He's told us what time it is. He's told us that Jesus knew the time. He's told us that everything Jesus will do is motivated and animated by love. Well, the second thing that happens is John invites us to meditate. In high definition, On the humble, loving act of Jesus. Read verse 2 and 3 with me. During supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands. And that he'd come from God. And was going back to God rose from supper. Verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Jesus knew why he was here. Verse 3, Jesus knew who he was. He was the one who has all power and all authority, all things had been given into his hands. He knew who he was. He was from the Father and he was going back to the Father. He is the eternal Son of God. Now get this. Knowing who he is, fully conscious and aware that he is God, Jesus rose from the supper. Jesus, he, he took off his outer garments, that is, he took off his kingly robes, as it were, to put on the dress of a slave. He got a basin of water and he began washing his disciples' feet. You now need to grasp this. Jesus, the Son of God, knowing that he has all power and authority at his disposal, he left his position of honour, the, the, the central position at the table, he was in the position of the host he left that position and he got down and he started washing his disciples feet because he was God do you know what God is like this is what God is like humble and loving Not that long ago i was reading an article i won't name the celebrity but they'd gone to a very plush restaurant and at the door the bouncer said you're not getting in they couldn't believe it and so they said to the bouncers do you know who i am and he's like yes And they thought, because of who I am, you should let me in. I've got power, I've got influence, I've got authority. He says, no, you're not not getting in. Some people want to use who they are so that they can serve themselves and get whatever they want. Here's Jesus, who is by definition the greatest. He is God. And what does he do? Knowing who he is. He rises from the supper to get down to serve his disciples. This is Philippians 2, isn't it? That we just sang about. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, Jesus who who was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. Are becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross? Do you know that this loving Savior is humble at the very core of his being? He is loving at the very core of who he is. I need to say something about the context that is so vital to understand. This is where the veil is being lifted. This is where we're seeing how glorious Jesus is. In John chapter 12, verse 45, Jesus says, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says the exact same thing. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In between these two statements is chapter 13 and this act where he goes and washes his disciples' feet. And so here's my question. What is God the Father like? humble and loving some of us because of our experiences with our earthly father have a distorted or a poor understanding of what God the father is like you want to know what God the father is like look at Jesus you want to understand God the father you see it in Jesus He's so humble. He's so loving. The Father and One—they are the Father and the Son—they are one. They're equal in power and glory, but they're distinct. But they're the exact same. You want to know the Father is like? Look, Jesus. This is this is what we're being enabled to see in the Book of Glory. We're being enabled to see what God is like. We should sit and stand here in open mouth amazement. Yeah, we know God is majestic, yeah, we know God is glorious. But have you ever reckoned with the fact that our Father in heaven is humble and loving? Well, as things proceed in verses four and five, John, who was an eye witness who watched every single thing that happened that night, describes in detail every movement of Jesus. How he laid aside his outer garments, how he took a towel, he tied it around his waist, how he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, how he wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John wrote this many years after the event, but he never forgot it. I guarantee you that there's some things that you can never forget. And sadly, some of the things that you will never forget are some of the worst things you've ever done. Things that bring shame, guilt. I want to suggest to you that John never forgot this. One, because this was the Lord of the universe. who was... Washing the fear of the disciples, but it was also because of the shame and guilt that was associated with this moment in his life. We know from Luke chapter 22, as they were enjoying this supper, the disciples were debating among themselves, who is the greatest? Who was going to get the positions? next to Jesus in his kingdom to come and he can't beat what Jesus did following their discussion he showed them in action what greatness looks like John never forgot On the night before Jesus' death, Jesus didn't prepare himself, but he prepared John and his fellow disciples for what was about to happen. Jesus lovingly determined to carry through to completion all that the Father had given him to do. You know, if we get an insight into what God is like, what Jesus is like, we, we get an insight as we think about them debating who's the greatest into what we are like you know the truth of that night when I didn't want to leave my room? I didn't want to lie in that bed. It's because I'm self-absorbed. It's because I'm self-interested and self-invested. Like I was the speaker. Why did I have to go into Kel's bed? That was the thought that was going through my head. You know what that reveals? The ugliness of my heart. The filthiness of my soul. Okay, so John has shown, John has set up the scene. John has invited us to meditate on the humble love of our Savior and the humble love of our God. Thirdly and finally, John lets us into the meaning and the application of it all. Now, at the start, I said that what we have in the washing of his disciples' feet is a symbolic act. It's an enacted parable where Jesus powerfully demonstrates what lay behind his coming into the world and the reason he was willing to go to the cross. Now, sadly, the disciples did not understand what was going on. But in time, they would understand. Now, what John does to help us understand the meaning of what's just happened is he records for us an unforgettable conversation between Jesus and Peter. You see, all the disciples, as they were having their feet washed, they were honestly sitting there in open mouth astonishment. They couldn't speak. They were silenced. But when Jesus drew close to Peter, well, if there's anyone who's ever going to speak, it was Peter. He's always got something to say. And Peter says, what I probably would have said if I had been there, Lord, and and, and the, the pronouns are emphatic here, Lord, do you wash my feet? And the point is, you, the one who's got the most honored position, you the teacher, you the master, you the Lord, do you Wash my feet. Peter is astonished at what he's witnessing. He, he can barely take it in. and he doesn't know that this is all intended to point him to the sacrifice that Jesus is about to make the next day. Who's going to die as his sinful substitute? Who is the Passover Lamb? Who's going to shed his blood so that sins can be forgiven? It's Jesus. Who's going to die? Who's going to die a God-forsaken death? It's Jesus. Who's going to be damned to hell on the cross? It's Jesus. It's interesting. Astonishment is what characterized all the disciples and Peter in this moment. They're, They're astonished at who Jesus is. They're astonished at what Jesus is doing. Can I just say, a characteristic of every Christian is astonishment. See, the astonishment that Peter had in this moment, it was only a tiny foretaste of the greater astonishment he would have when he came to understand one, what Jesus did that night to him and two, what Jesus did the next day for his people. I need to ask you this question. I need to ask myself this question. Every time I think about Jesus, am I astounded, astonished at him? You don't get Jesus unless that is your response to Jesus. Now, What made this so astonishing was not one of these disciples would have ever dreamed of doing what Jesus did. Do you know that to wash someone's feet, it was the task reserved for the, the lowest household servant. In some cases, Jews wouldn't even allow their Jewish servants to wash the people who came into their house's feet. They'd make sure it was a Gentile. In some cases. These disciples would have never dreamed of doing this. No, 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 no. But, but do you know what they also would never have dreamed of is their master, their teacher, their Lord doing this. This is just unthinkable. But it makes a point so clearly of the gospel. You can't become a Christian unless you allow Jesus to serve you. Being a Christian is not about you serving Him. Being a Christian is not about you bringing anything to the table. Being a Christian is you humbly receiving what Jesus has done for you on your behalf. Being a Christian is allowing Jesus to serve you. And and, and you need to understand the reason why we need Jesus to serve us is because, because of our predicament. Because of our sin. So serious is our sin, only God can save us. Peter said to Jesus, what do you think you're doing in essence? How can you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand, but afterwards you'll understand. And it's at this point we realize there's more than going on here than just a a foot-washing ceremony. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, it's been clear. Remember the testimony of John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus has come into this world to take away the sin of his people, to remove the barrier between fellowship, between sinful man and God. You cannot have fellowship with God if you are still dead in your sins. But you cannot remove your sin unless God does it for you in Jesus Christ. Now, Peter protested at the thought of jesus washing his feet and then jesus responded by explaining what lay behind his action this symbolized something else listen to what jesus said if i do not wash you you have no share with me now this is where i just absolutely love peter just think about it right if i don't wash you you can have nothing to do with me Okay, let me think about that. Jesus, give me a bath. <laughs> my head, my hands, my feet, do it all. You know what Peter's saying? Jesus, I love you. I, I want to fellowship with you. And if you're a Christian, you can understand what Peter's saying here. But Peter just didn't understand entirely all that was going on. He didn't need a bath. He'd come to faith in Jesus, he'd beheld the glory of Jesus, he believed in Jesus, and, he, and, in, and when you believe in Jesus, his once and for all act is applied to you. You're cleansed, you're forgiven, you're justified, you're accepted, you're made righteous. But following justification, if justification is sanctification as we walk through life in this sinful world as Those who still battle with indwelling sin each and every single day, we fall short and we need a daily cleansing. The reason we we have a prayer of confession every Lord's Day, the reason Martin Luther said the Christian life is a life of daily repentance is because we need a daily cleansing of our sin. And that was the, the symbolic act here. Jesus was cleansing their sin. Now, so many traditions, Christian traditions have got this wrong they've turned the the washing of Jesus' feet into a sacrament that is to entirely miss this and and the reason we know this is a symbolic act is because Jesus even goes as far as to say, Peter you're completely clean but there is one here that is not clean and Jesus washed his feet by the way, Judas Iscariot the one who would betray him it's not actually about the foot washing it's about what it points to our need for cleansing. Now, Jesus has unpacked the meaning for us. Now, very quickly, let's just let Jesus apply this action to us. Here's the glorious truth of the gospel. If Jesus saves us, if Jesus cleanses us, he also wants to transform us. And and, and Jesus, he sets this example for us to emulate. Everyone who becomes a follower of Jesus Becomes a servant of Jesus. I love what Jesus says to them in verse 12. He says, do you understand what I've done to you? I can imagine them all looking at themselves, looking at each other. Do you understand what I've done to you? The answer is no, but this is a rhetorical question. So Jesus spells it out to them. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Now And here, here's, here's what he does. He argues from the greater to the lesser. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus says, if you are someone who has been cleansed, if you are someone who has been forgiven, if you have someone who's come to know Jesus Christ, You are a servant. Verse seventeen is my favourite verse in all this little interaction. H. B. Charles, one of my favourite preachers, says this is one of the lost beatitudes, and it's a paradox. You know what a paradox is? G. K. Chesterton defined a paradox as a truth standing on its head to get attention here's what jesus says listen if you know these things blessed are you if you do them if you know if you understand why jesus did what he did what he if you understand what Jesus did what it was pointing to. If you understand that you've been cleansed, if you understand, if you know these things, then you know that the blessing, the thing that will give you the most happiness, most fulfillment, most purpose, is if you do it. (laughs) I'd been a student at seminary for one whole year. My first year at seminary, I learned what covenant theology was. I learned basic grammar and all the vocabulary of Greek New Testament. My first year, I learned Old Testament. And my first year, I learned church history. Can I be really, and I'm being really honest, that night on that bed at that camp, there's a sense in which I can say, I learned more than my entire first year at seminary. I learned lying on that mattress that was stinking, reeking of urine that I serve a saviour who served me by coming into this sin-sick and filthy world to die in my place for my sin, the most humiliating death, the most agonising death because cursed is he who hangs on a tree And I learned that if he is my saviour and master, if he the Lord of glory with all power and authority, if he did that, then this was no way beneath me. This is what I was called to do. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, the good news of the gospel is you can come to Jesus this morning and believe. And you can receive spiritual cleansing. You can have your soul washed. Your iniquity taken away. A clean heart with new affections. And if you're a Christian here this morning and you've been cleansed, here's the challenge. Here's the exhortation. If you know these things, blessed. Blessed. Are you, if you do them? Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we are astonished, astounded, silent. To think that the Lord of glory got down on bended knee so that we could see what he is like and what you are like. So that one day all of us will get down on bended knee and we will confess that he is indeed Lord to the glory of you, Father. Father. Father, we thank you for Peter, who would write in his letter that we are to clothe ourselves with all humility because you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. That we humble ourselves this morning under your right and mighty hand and we come and, those of us who are believers, we pray for your Spirit's help that as we go forth into this week that we would be blessed as those who have heard and those who have understood And as those who seek to apply the reality of who we are in Christ to our lives. We pray for anyone here this morning who has never come to you. To allow you to serve them. Who's never received the gift of salvation. Oh God may today be the day of salvation as they put their faith and trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.